Welcome everybody to the latest edition of 42 to Doomsday. I'm Mark. And I'm Rob. And tonight, in the afterglow of the Sydney leg of the World Tour, we talk about how in Naimon's name did the show get this big. So, Mark, the uh, Doctor Who World Tour has visited Australian shores and as quickly as it came, it's uh, departed. What were your impressions of the whole uh, experience? I must admit, I didn't see much of it. I haven't listened to any of the um, radio interviews or uh, television appearances. I was actually more relieved that nobody gave uh, Peter Capaldi and Jenna another painted picture. Did you see the one that the uh, South Koreans gave? I did. That uh, Edvard Munch uh, print or lithograph, The Scream... That uh, that looked a lot like uh, Capaldi's face in that photo. That was that was horrifying. It was, I mean, <laughs> you can only you can only shake your head in bemusement at our South Korean uh, cousins uh, in Hoodum. Uh, what they what that person was thinking. It, it's it's certainly unique. Let's just put it that way. It made Peter Capaldi look like Pigsy from Monkey Magic. Yes, well, they are Buddhist tales, and there are a lot of Buddhists, I suppose, in South Korea. Yeah. Actually, I thought it was painted by uh, Cecilia Gimenez, the uh, lady who restored Behold the Man painting. We use yeah. the word restored uh, very, very <laughs> loosely, don't we? <laughs> yes. Mm. Anyway, moving away from that picture. The, the Sydney League seemed to have gone well. It's some nice photo ops by the Sydney Opera House there. The, the event itself, from uh, later on the podcast, we've actually got a friend of the show, Rob Lloyd. He went up there and he's filed a special report from Sydney, so um, you can hear firsthand from his perspective, but I've spoken to other, a couple of friends afterwards and they seem to have enjoyed it. Yeah, what about you? I caught the tail end of a couple of things. Actually, as we record, or later on this evening, uh, there is a, an interview with Capaldi on uh, ABC television at about, you know, in about an hour and a half's time, so... Uh, so they're still milking for that for all it's worth. But I caught the tail end of it on uh, of an interview with him and, and, and uh, General Louise Coleman on um, commercial television, uh, early evening commercial television. So there's a lot of crossover appeal, just apart from him being featured on the ABC here. He was on commercial FM radio uh, and also, uh, as I said before, a commercial TV station. So there was certainly it certainly made an impact for their brief stay here. Uh, and uh, as we hear later from uh, Rob Lloyd, uh, it was a very well-received uh, screening in Sydney. It's a pity that they didn't make it down to Melbourne because, as we know, Melbourne is the arts capital of Australia. I suppose if BBC... Is it BBC Australia? Is that who they are? I think it's BBC Worldwide Australia. Are they based, yeah, are they based in Sydney, yeah. are they? So, yeah, they okay. are. So they, don't, yeah. they don't want to jump on a 45-minute plane flight down to Melbourne. But that's fair enough. But, you know, they missed out on coming down to Melbourne. But, um, look, I suppose we, the World Tour... I mean, we're going to touch on this later on in our main topic. The World Tour is, I suppose, symptomatic of where Doctor Who is within mainstream culture i suppose that uh it is an event uh and especially with you know peter capaldi you know taking up the 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 mantle of the of the new doctor media given you know the 24-hour news cycle and the need to fill you know the airwaves with something um that this is uh this is something that they can the media can latch onto and and fill you know a a one or two or three minute slot it's the bandwagon rolls on and where are they now they they went to new york last night they went to new york yeah went to new york saw a couple of pictures on uh twitter they look quite refreshed actually from an 18 hour plane ride well hopefully uh the bbc sprung for first class uh seating the reports that i'd heard or seen that uh 
Peter Capaldi and Jenna Louise Coleman looked a little bit tired, or maybe their tiredness was confused for bemusement uh, in South Korea. <laughs> Especially after the picture. That picture, I <laughs> that'll be. I think that'll be one of the great icons of uh, of, of uh, Doctor Modern Doctor Who. <laughs> Somewhere, I'm wondering where it's hanging now, or where its future resting place will be. Will it be, you know, in Stephen Moffat's study or Capaldi's study? The DWM officers be the next cover. Oh, that'll Pigsy and Chupataka, welcome back. <laughs> so uh, yeah, the world tour came to Australia, and the world tour went, and there are a lot of positive images from it, and uh, and uh, a lot of positive uh, commentary about the episode itself. Uh, they showed uh, deep breath, obviously, uh, mm. in, in the sort of the wake of uh, into the Dalek um, leaking onto the internet. The, the second episode from uh, the, new, the upcoming new season. Uh, are you going to see Deep Breath in the cinema next weekend? No. Uh, are you? I am, oh. actually. Yeah, I'm trying to get uh, inspired and, and, and invigorated for the new series, so I've decided to go and see it uh, next Sunday night at 6.30. So, uh, yeah, I'm going off to see it with a friend. Will you be watching it on the television beforehand, or will you spare your, not spare yourself, but uh, save yourself? I'm going to the snow next weekend, so I'm going to be otherwise disposed of. <laughs> Indisposed on two skis. Indisposed on two... Well, I can't ski for monkeys. Tobo- tobogganing? Yeah, I go tobogganing, yeah. Not with my dodgy knee, I can ski. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, so I'm um, going to the cinema to see it. I've noticed that the prices are a bit high, though, over here. I don't know how much the rest of the world is paying for a cinema ticket to go and see it there, but on the, on the big screen. Isn't the uh, the standard cinema ticket here in our Australian dollars about 19 or $20? It is, and they're charging 25 for it. On principle, I refuse to go now. You can't, well, you can obviously, but no. It's 15 minutes of extra content, Rob, come on. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what YouTube's for, isn't it, later on down the track? No, I'm actually more interested in uh, going to see Guardian into the galaxy I'll be, I've will be i been saving up my pennies to go see that so I uh, was happy to go to see Day of the Doctor uh, in the cinema last year but I'll give uh, Deep Breath a miss and uh, wake up in the morning and uh, watch it like uh, everyone else you're not going to wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning oh right? no bugger that I get precious little sleep as it is at the moment and I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not going to truncate what sleep I do get by getting up and watching television no 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 no, no. I'll, I'll watch it like the rest of Australian society uh, in the evening and uh, avoid the internet for spoilers, of course. But kudos to the ABC for actually doing that. Well, I mean, this is this is part of the thing about the show uh, in the twenty first century, uh, particularly right now. It is it, it's hotter than you know hot, basically. The BBC uh, have hit upon it seems a winning formula. It, it's a good thing for the show that it's not on like a lot of you say US television for twenty two or twenty three weeks of the year. Otherwise, it'd be terribly overexposed. But given that it's you know twelve or thirteen episodes only, and it's sort of there's a there's a years gap in between. You can you can forgive the uh, the you know the, the fact that the BBC goes over the top a little bit with organising simultaneous uh, transmission around the world and uh, world tours and, and and cinema screening. So I can understand why they would go down that path to make up for the lack of uh, actual episode count. I was just going to say off the back of the world tour, we've heard uh, in the last few hours uh, internet mutterings uh, that uh, General Louise Coleman has. Oh, we'll be leaving the show come uh, the Christmas special. It's unconfirmed, isn't it, at the moment? Oh well, it's 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 based off a uh, online report from a British uh, newspaper, so take that as you will. I had a quick look at Twitter before, and the amount of vitriol towards <laughs> Clara is amazing. Is it towards Clara, or is it towards General Louise Coleman? It's actually more towards Clara. I'll, I'll read you some of the highlights I've picked out. 
Clara is leaving Doctor Who. This is the greatest moment of my life. You mustn't be that old then. I went to the gym and came home and found out Clara is leaving Doctor Who. This is a great day. It was optimistic of the mirror to say Clara is leaving Doctor Who. If only she would. And it goes on and on and on. So, Clara, what went wrong? Well, <laughs> how long have we got? It's it's strange. She, she seems like... Jenna Coleman uh, seems like she's been with the show for two or three years, but she's only been, apparently, in about ten episodes. Over 18 months. Over 18 yeah. months. I think the yeah. mistake was that of the three iterations of Clara, the production team went with the most boring one. You had the Victorian governess, which admittedly is a cliché, but it would have made a really interesting change from having a modern-day female companion. And granted, you couldn't have, obviously, the dalek uh the Dalek version of Clara. That would, that would never have worked. But they've gone with the bog-standard young uh, modern female like Rose, like Martha, uh, and to a lesser extent, Donna. And they've managed to perform the seeming miracle of not giving her a really discernible character. Effectively, she was a plot device for the most recent season. And you can't build a character around a plot device, uh, as far as I'm concerned. So while you don't... I've never faulted uh, Coleman on her abilities abilities and her throwing herself into the role. Mm. Moffat and the writers under his guidance, in my opinion, have let the actress down with the material that she's been forced to to work with and it, I've also thought it doesn't really help having a character who's earthbound and the doctor has to sort of to, to have an adventure he has to go and pick her up and I sometimes tend to think that that throws the pacing off of some of the stories where you you waste two or three or four or five minutes where you could just sort of jump into the story actually just reading now quickly um, the mirror online has posted Jenna Louise uh, Coleman quits Clara Oswald's eight most memorable moments I'll be Hard pressed to think of one, to be perfectly honest. Well, the only memorable moment I can think of is a, is a purely visual special effects moment where she steps into the Doctor's timeline. That, that's you know that's not a character moment. That's no, that's, no. That's her fulfilling her function as the plot device. Yeah, look, I'm basing all my opinions of her and her character on Series Seven. I'm hoping that Series Eight will give her something to do. All the indications you, you sort of read from uh, interviews with Capaldi, comments by Moffat that. The new series is, is is heading off in a different direction to what we've sort of been used to for the last, well, really since David Tennant came along. Um, hmm. No longer is there this sort of unresolved sexual tension that, I, in my opinion, has blighted the series for four or five or six years. And now you have a different take, well, a, a different take for a modern Doctor with, you know, Capaldi's performance or where they're sort of indicating that he's going. And you, instead of... Uh, the, the the doctor and his companion being best friends or you know f- to p- f- for want of a better label will they or won't they um you have a well it seems like it's almost an adversarial well, that's probably going a bit too far but for want of a better word adversarial ap- approach between the two of them and the impression that i get is that what they're doing with capaldi is what they tried to do with colin baker and f- failed miserably unfortunately but uh, they they're, they're sort of going down we would think that they're going down that path, but hopefully that they've got uh, it actually properly planned out. Look, it'll be interesting to see how they go. If this is her last, you know, full series, uh, hopefully uh, Coleman is given the material that she deserves. She deserves. Effectively absolutely. deserves, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, where do, you, where do you stand on that? The Impossible Girl is quite forgettable, in my opinion. Which, yeah, it's, it's a real shame. It's just... 
Mm. It's I, I don't understand how Stephen Moffat, who has written for female characters with some you know uh, aplomb for t- twenty odd years, has so badly dropped the ball with um, with Clara. I just don't understand it. Poor old Jenna, she deserved better. Now, as you all know, in our last episode, we had uh, Rob Lloyd uh, guesting on the show, talking about comedy. We'd actually like to thank everyone for listening to that episode. That was our uh, highest downloaded episode. So thank you to Rob for making that happen. And also thank you to all our loyal listeners for uh, helping us break our own personal record. Rob, uh, in actual fact, attended the World Tour event up in Sydney. And he was very uh, gracious enough to record a little piece uh, about his experiences at the World Tour event. So our special correspondent, Rob Lloyd, take it away. Hello, this is Rob Lloyd, and I am going to provide you with a special report on the Doctor Who World Tour event in Sydney. Feeling a little bit like I'm like a, a correspondent for a news program, I should be there going, Cairo, the heart of northern Africa, but underneath lies an underbelly of deceit, crime, and despair. I won't do it in that voice for the whole time, I'll just be uh, distracting. So, yeah, on a Tuesday morning, I uh, flew up to Sydney with a couple of mates. I'd only just come back from being in Sydney over the weekend, hosting a Teen Wolf convention, which went surprisingly well. Um, So Tuesday morning, uh, early Tuesday afternoon, flew up to Sydney uh, to attend the event. We found out we'd arrived uh, too late to actually go down to uh, the harbour, where they had an impromptu photo session with the TARDIS, created by uh, Aussie Company, kind of creations, where they had Jenna and Peter there. So we missed that opportunity, and um, already the internet exploded with people who were down there who got wind of it, and a couple of fans got some selfies with Capaldi, and that was uh, a bit of a loss, a bit of a miss, but that's okay. And so, yeah, uh, we got to the event early, as I was uh, required to be there, because I'd been uh, involved in the documentary. As I said last time, I was on 42 to Doomsday, and those guys wanted to do some more stuff with me so I arrived um, uh, they gave me a double A access pass so I got to go uh, into the state theatre a bit early have a look at the space didn't get to meet Jenna or Pete which is okay there was talk of it about a month ago when they first got in touch with me that maybe I would but that opportunity kind of dried up and I was there uh, I was given a camera crew and uh, a microphone and I went around and interviewed punters and got their uh, their stories about how they became Doctor Who fans and how excited they were to get involved in the the World Tour in Sydney event. And so, yeah, I'm here to talk to you about how that whole event ran. So it was run by uh, the BBC Worldwide Australia New Zealand division, um, and they have a certain section called their live entertainment. And those guys take care of uh, the symphonic orchestra. That They also took care of the science of Doctor Who, which I was involved in, and they're involved in this event. And it was very tightly run in so... I'd go so far as to say it was too tightly run. It was micromanaged to the extreme. Every little detail, every extremity was uh, worked out, every intricate detail, and there was no sense of a relaxed nature to it. It was it was tightly run, which was good, but it also seemed there wasn't any room for spontaneity or just a little bit of free-for-all, which you'd like in a live event. You'd like to have a little bit of anarchy, but it was run super smick 
and almost yeah well no it was it was too tightly run um there was no red carpet um so there was no opportunity for the stars to walk through and there wasn't much of room for it the state theater's just off george street in the center of uh sydney so there was no real room it was raining outside there was no space really it was a it's on a really tight street uh, a side street off George Street and so it was it was uber packed and actually the foyer of the State Theatre is beautiful but also quite tight as well so there's no real opportunity there they swapped the order around from the previous screening so um, the screening was first there was a break and then there was question and answer so opportunities to meet the stars was non-existent they had merchandise sold um, there's a couple of little things for people to do like they could um, up up in the top section of the dress circle there was a 360 vine video set up so the camera was on a it's like an ipad was on this system and it went around 360 degrees in seven seconds and captured fans you know doing their poses and stuff so that was pretty much all there was in the pre-show type of stuff a lot of people buying merchandise and drinks and socializing and talking and looking at all the cosplay i did a couple of interviews which was good uh the event started the host uh, adam spencer walked through the crowd first and did some vox popping which was very cool and endeared him to the crowd and and uh warmed everybody up which was great he came on and introduced uh the event with a very tight introduction of just a couple of minutes he tried to put some uh, who related jokes or mentions there and they were a little bit off you could hear all the fans tighten up a bit so instead of Janet Fielding he said Jane Fielding he didn't say Ron Grainer he just said Mr. Grainer a little bits of things like that which all the you know hardcore fans tensed up about uh, and then the episode played on the big screen and it was absolutely incredible it looked amazing uh, on the big screen it suited it so well um, the episode was amazing. We're not going to give any spoilers away, but Compaldi is a revelation. Uh, Jenna Coleman is finally getting material to match her actual skill and talent. The Pandanosigan gang were great, I, but I'm a big fan of theirs. The effects were great. The script was wonderful. They took their time. And they could over 75 minutes to develop their characters a bit more. There was a fun energy to it. The darkness was seeping through, but not overplayed, which I like. Uh, and then we had an interval. We had a break. We came back in. We had some video footage of uh, Australian Doctor Who fans who had submitted stuff, which was really cute and wonderful. Um, we then had a very dramatic introduction. We had a Cyberman come out for no apparent reason, just to have a Cyberman there. Jenna Coleman made a very spectacular entrance. She was like lit from above. There was smoke. She came out, was interviewed by uh, Adam Spencer, who did a very good job with the interview. He did very well with that, but it was very tight. We could even see the uh, the prompt for him on the side going, wrap it up, move on, always pushing him ahead, not to give that much time. There were standard questions, the usual stuff of how is it working on set, how did it feel to get the role, what's your connections to Australia. So nothing real detailed there, just a little bit of, you know, pat as it were. They then played a montage of all the Doctors regenerating on this massive uh, psychorama at the back, and then the new Doctor was introduced. The psych where all the, or the scrim at the back where all the, footage was being screened was dropped dramatically there was a light from above shone down on capaldi who was standing there smoke billowed and he walked out to two thousand people almost giving him a standing ovation which is being reported all around the world uh, and and rightly so he's just, and he was just consummate professional charming graceful elegant man beautifully spoken uh with a cheeky smile and this great uh self-deprecating uh, attitude uh, his interview with Adam Spencer was lovely, 
I went into the usual things about you're a fan when you're a child. You wrote this letter to to um, the Radio Times. I showed a picture you drew of Tom Baker and didn't go into more detail. I mean, fans who are aware, hardcore fans are aware of just, he wasn't just a fan. He was quite obsessive and he badgered the BBC and that didn't really come out. It has in other interviews. And then both joined the stage and we saw the nice chemistry between the two of them, which was lovely. Only 10 questions were allowed from the audience. They were pre-selected and those questions were quite nice and diverse. And then we're wrapped up. We're all done. Uh, They took a bow and that was it. And they were immediately whisked off to get some sleep and they flew out to America the next day. So it was a very professionally put together event. The episode was wonderful to see on the big screen. BBC Worldwide Australia should be very proud of what they achieved. It's a shame there have been comments about the ticket prices being so exorbitant compared to anywhere else um, and not so much of us to get an access to the stars it seems like the Australian audiences were held back from them quite a lot whereas in Seoul and London there was you know red carpet events easy access for them to meet the fans sign autographs and really generate a massive attitude but here it was very much a case of you are the fans you are here but and we want you to be here and spend your money but you will not get the access to these stars. You will only see them at a distance, which is a real shame compared to how much access uh, the stars have had to the fans from, from other parts of the world. So I guess the backlash is coming from the fact that we can compare it to how other countries have been. And the love and support that was there was just huge. And it's just a shame that the fans weren't treated a bit nicer. We kind of seem to be exploited a bit now because who is such a big commodity to the BBC? Uh, it's very clear to see that we are, you know, we are needed. They like having us around, but they're ve- but they're very cautious of letting us get too close, which is a shame. But generated a lot of interest, a lot of love, a lot of support, and you know, roll on the twenty fourth of August where it screens in Australia. Uh, simulcast and then later on in the day. Uh, This has been Rob Lloyd for 42 to Doomsday and that's my report on the wonderful uh, world tour event in Sydney uh, this week. Take care and I'll see you next time we go into darkness. So Mark, as we discussed earlier in the episode, uh, the show has been on a um, whirlwind world tour, which is um, symptomatic of the, the the show's position well within you know mainstream entertainment. It wasn't so long ago that uh, Doctor Who, effectively as a and I use that terrible word brand, was effectively dead. Uh, you know, the, the anniversary in two thousand and three, the fortieth anniversary seemed to come and go with a whimper, but barely two, two and a half years later, Doctor Who was well and truly back where it uh, found itself um, in the early years in 1964. We probably should go through a bit of a potted history of how, of how Doctor Who was embraced and then and then uh, ab- discarded. discarded or abandoned by, by, uh, mm. by the television <laughs> viewing audience. I suppose uh, it all starts with Sidney Newman looking for a show to bridge the gap between uh, the sports show on a Saturday afternoon, and I think it was Jukebox Jury. Is that right? That's right. So something that would bring adults and children together for that, you know, thirty odd minutes. And so Doctor Who was born, and then of course with Dalek Mania in the nineteen sixty four, the show quickly became embedded within the the uh, the memory and consciousness of uh, two generations of viewers. And then of course as we go into the seventies, the show reached new heights of uh, popularity uh, with uh, John Pertwee and Tom Baker. But then of course um, it sort of began to fade and fizzle away during the eighties, and the show 
seemed for some reason to, uh, instead of looking forward, it began to look back and became, seemed to me at least, to become a show that appealed to a niche instead of a broader audience and uh, was quickly abandoned by the BBC. And so, you know, the, during the 16-year uh, interregnum, uh, for want of a, <laughs> a better word, <laughs> that's a terrible word, interregnum, the show was basically off and no one, you know, you, you, it became a punch punchline to any number of jokes about bad acting, bad effects, sets. probably sets. But sort of as we said um, in two thousand and four five, uh, it uh, it came back. It came back as a roaring success. So what? What? How do we explain how Doctor Who has so firmly become embedded within sort of mainstream entertainment today? The series is now pitched towards a family audience and made it accessible for everyone, and that's where it paid it. To be perfectly honest, in two thousand and five, uh, the the initial launch. Now we thought it was amazingly spectacular was actually quite muted compared to what we've just seen in Sydney and the rest of the world. Even when David Tennant was the Doctor, it never seemed to be as big as what it could be. It was always something holding it back. And I don't know whether it was because the the broadcaster in America was, I think, was Sci-Fi Channel back then? Yes. And they were chopping and changing it and moving time slots and, and sometimes it's not even screening it. And I think when it moved over to BBC America, who quickly realised we're onto a bit of a winner here, and in particular when David Tennant was leaving and Series 5 of Matt Smith was a perfect jumping on point to get a, another type of audience who maybe had missed the David Tennant era and Chris Eccleston and basically run with it and promote the crap out of it. With Series 5, they went to New York to do the initial launch, which obviously now was a lot smaller than what we've just seen with Capaldi and Jenna, and then BBC America also pitched in some cash for Series 6. So definitely the big push and the support for America has been a great momentum for the for the series. In the entertainment world, America is the center of the universe, isn't it? So mm. if you want your product, and we're going to, the way we're going to talk tonight, we're going to basically <laughs> turn Doctor Who into a product. I mean, it is a brand, it is a global brand now, like the BBC is. It is a marketable commodity. I mean, you, you, you can't go into a toy store and, and not be overwhelmed by the amount of uh, product that is there. You go into mainstream bookshops here in, here in Melbourne and you see Doctor Who books. Uh, as you said to me before we started uh, the podcast, you left work uh, a couple of days ago and there was someone walking out of work with a, a Doctor Who themed beanie on their head. Yes, that was embarrassing. <laughs> I nearly smacked them on the back of the head with that. So what are you doing, son? In my day, you held it all internally. You never showed your, your fanness. Never showed your emotions about Doctor Who ne- for fear of no. uh, <laughs> yes. being belted. There, there was a bit of resistance to the show coming back in 2005. But yes. um, the people who put it all together, RTD and... Uh, Julie Gardner and, and Phil Collins. Yeah, and names that I can never remember. They cannily pitch it to a mainstream audience. I mean, it was back on BBC One. It mm. was on in a family-friendly time slot on a Saturday evening. So mm. perfect, perfect for families. And what, what do you do in terms of the casting? You get a, a highly regarded, uh, slightly older actor, and then you get a phenomenally popular pop singer who's known to you know the younger demographic, and you pair them together. And you'll remember that um, that ad that screened before uh, the, the series started, where Eccleston is, is directly addressing the audience and saying, you know... You know do you it, want to come with me? Do you want to come with me? It won't be safe, yeah. it won't be this, it won't be that. But do you want to come with me? Do you want to have an adventure with us? And that you can't... I don't think you can underestimate the sort of electrifying effect that that would have on a viewer who may not have ever watched Doctor Who but is basically mm. being invited to come along with the show. And also pitching it to the, the mums and dads who had memories of watching the show maybe in the 60s or 70s or even in the early 80s mm. where they considered it to be great television and thoroughly enjoying it. When they see that ad, 
Of course, you're going to give it another go and say, oh, well, obviously the BBC's behind it and they've got a great actor. That's, this is going to be great. Exactly. I, 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 can't, I don't think you can underestimate the nostalgia factor being in play at that point. I mean, as you said, there mm. were people who, uh, when the show was you know, still on in the late 70s and early 80s, who, who later became parents, even though the show uh, was sort of disparaged while it was off. I don't think you can underestimate that nostalgia factor that the BBC were, were, were tapping into. And um, and as we know, Rose got phenomenal ratings. And here in Australia, I remember that the ABC, in uh, just before the, the the episode was screened, you know, had had a uh, an ad on basically, you know, stating that you know, watched by 11 million viewers in the UK. And what basically that says is Doctor Who is no longer a niche audience for spotty geeks. This is something that is big in the UK. Get mm. on board. Mm. I mean, a lot of the marketing is designed to, you know, attract people's attention and keep their attention on that. You know, and you, you sort of, you, in the lead up to when the show came came back, you saw reports on the BBC. You, sh- you saw reports in the mainstream press, you know, massive selling newspapers like The Sun had, had, had articles and had interviews. Um, it was it was all over the sh- all over the place. All, all that was designed to do, I suppose, was to say to the audience, again, I mean, I'm repeating myself here, look, Doctor Who's back on television. It's a mainstream show. We've got Christopher Eccleston. We've got Billy Piper. Come on board. In retrospect, though, do you think the Series 1, that was such a big push by the BBC, do you think the BBC took the, the foot off the pedal for the David Tennant years? Well, I think that with Tennant coming along, it gave the, op- it gave the BBC the opportunity to actually even to actually go for an even broader audience. Look, let's face facts. For all of Eccleston's ability as an actor, he's not a good-looking man. <laughs> and uh, let's... Neither am I, but yeah, more to the point. <laughs> but once you team up David Tennant, a youthful, energetic handsome looking individual with Billy Piper, a youthful, energetic, toothy, good looking young woman, you, you, you suddenly have, you know, dynamite for the viewing audience because not only do you have action and adventure for the young kids, but uh, and for the older, you know, and for the adults as well, but for that in, in between demographic, which is full of romantically minded teenage girls and similarly minded, you know, teenage boys, you've got that unresolved sexual tension between Tennant and Piper, which has powered any number of television shows over the last 30 years i mean you look at moonlighting you look at the x-files it's a will they won't they sort of thing and people shouldn't underestimate the ability of that sort of storytelling to appeal to a really wide audience and get the younger that sort of that in-between crowd really hooked into the show they might not be there necessarily for the sci-fi adventure of it but they are certainly there to get their fill of the romance, you know, is emblematic of that teenage sort of uh, period of in people's lives, and you know, Tennant and 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 Piper did that to a T. And then the ending, uh, at the end of Doomsday, where they are separated, not merely separated by distance but by dimension. I mean, you can you can all you would have almost been able to hear the hearts breaking across the UK when that when that occurred, as opposed to when I went to the Doctor Who Symphony in January and when they played that scene. And I think it just been announced that it was a top scene in sci-fi by SFX. People started laughing. It is horribly <laughs> overwrought. There's no doubting that. But having said all that, it should have been really as successful as what it is now. It was dominating the ratings in the UK at that time. But whereas it was, it, it seemed it seems at me at least to have been a purely UK dominance. It mm. needed to break into a much bigger market, and that bigger market obviously is the US. Mm. Now we saw, as you said before, that it was poorly scheduled initially in in America, mm. and it was only when, as you say, BBC America came on board and got involved and got behind it 
that it began to, I think, break more into, you know, mainstream coverage in the US. So mm. you started seeing stories set in America, which I, I think would have suited RTD uh, to a great extent. I mean, I, I see a lot of the JNT showman in, in Russell T. Davis, which is no criticism. I mean, at the end of the day, you need to promote the show. It needs to be mm. a popular show because otherwise, how can you justify the money that's being spent on it? So uh, going, looking for it in, in a market like America it was the obvious next step. Are you saying that it didn't seem to take advantage of its um? It didn't seem to take advantage of its dominance in the U- in the UK necessarily. And also the formula, you know, Tenet is a good-looking bloke, and you know, with either Freeman, Adjaman, or Rose Tyler, or Donna Noble, those combinations of those characters could have had the same level of success that Matt Smith got towards the end of his tenure and even the buzz around what Capaldi's year is going to bring as well. I think it just needed the opportunity to get get, get into the States. I think that I think mm. that's what it sort of it, it lacked uh, at that time. I mean, they may not have even thought, well, this is what we're going to do. I mean, they probably thought initially this is going to, you know, not get past its first year. Uh, so why push that hard? But when they realised that they had a success on their hand, when they realised that, you know, Tenet was going to be able to build on that initial success... Then they started looking for a larger market for it. And let's not forget the imperative to make money here. Now, we all know that the BBC is basically publicly funded. But in, in, in sort of harsh economic times, as the show found itself in in the mid-2000s with the, the GFC and all that, my sense is that there was, there was a, a need to, or, or a requirement, in a sense, to push the show out there as a, as a, as a commercial product to get the sales into foreign markets and to get viewers buying product. Hence the deluge of, uh, of licenses that went out for all manner of goods. And as we talked about in our, in our earlier podcast about merchandise, um, during that tenant era, there was a massive amount of merchandise that started to come out and you know started money just raining on the BBC or BBC Worldwide at least. Uh, and, and, and moving into America was, was, I suppose, part of that. Also helped with the fact that from a sci-fi perspective, Doctor Who was the only thing the BBC was doing at the time, where a lot of the American companies and television stations were doing their own sci-fi. And from a British point of view, until Doctor Who came back, there was very, very little sci-fi. And I think part of the reason for the success of Doctor Who, you know, not, not only in America, but also around the world, is its essential Britishness. Mm. I don't th- I, we, we shouldn't underestimate the fact that, that in America... <sighs> It being a British show gives it an additional gloss of interest. I mean, mm. you know, the Americans and the British, like we do, of course, have a shared history, but paths diverge and, you know, the British way of life and, you know, the, the, the British experience is a different one to the American one. And having a show as idiosyncratic as Doctor Who come into the American uh, viewers' watching experience would have been an interesting, you know, would have been something that captured their attention because it's it's different, it's new, it's fresh, and uh, and that sort of quirkiness that you don't necessarily find in in mainstream U.S. genre shows because a lot of them are relentlessly po-faced. You look at Star Trek, you look at Babylon Five, you look at the X Files, you look at Supernatural, you look at Charmed. A lot of them mm. are more 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 or less straight up and down. But then you look at Doctor Who. And you have, you know, you have a show that's based around a quirky individual who, you know, appears to be human but is clearly not, 
with adventures that are just you know way out there and i don't think you can uh, underestimate the the impact that, that would have on a viewer but also with america it's helped that a couple of celebrities have gone behind the show as well it's amazing as we said in a previous podcast how many uh, mainstream media identities are now on the doctor who bandwagon and are happy to be associated with it. Where in the US you had people like Craig Ferguson, Chris Hardwick as well. Also that Doctor Who was appearing at uh, San Diego Comic Con. It had, uh, had a panel there. I think Tennant was there for one year. Matt Smith was there for one year. They didn't go this year, of course. But that buzz around San Diego Comic Con does garner a lot of interest as well. From a brand perspective, at least. I'm glad you mentioned Matt Smith. Because the explosion in the show's uh, entry into the US really seems to coincide with Matt Smith coming along. Is it simply because the it's just a, a one-off, that there was something about Matt Smith, there was something about Karen Gillan that really caught the attention of the, you know, the, the, the viewer, the genre viewer in the States? Because, I mean, there was just, it was, in, it was rapturous, rapturous uh, interest in Matt Smith. I mean, you know, the people who even now are sad that Matt Smith is gone, that you know Karen Gillan is gone, and all that sort of thing. It's, it's remarkable. I mean, I check my Twitter feed daily, and and there are still people who go on and on and on about Matt Smith, and we miss him, and all that sort of thing. It's just, it's, I I I, I personally struggle to understand <laughs> that, but but it, it clearly, and it probably harks back to that sort of David Tennant, Billy Piper thing, where you know Matt Smith is a slightly odd-looking individual, but he's undeniably uh, has charisma about him hmm. um, and that, that that segment of the viewing audience loves him it's hard to put a finger on it isn't it well it is hard to put a finger on it I mean I, 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 I struggle to understand it fully but there's, there's no denying that at you know at the various comic cons that they've attended um, uh, whenever they've gone you know around for, 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 for openings and that sort of thing the the, uh, the response has been electric I think it's just coincided with that big push in, into America, as I said before, where that Series 5 was that starting point, and people obviously got on board. And he is a visually interesting-looking person, isn't he? Mm. It's hard to understand why Smith has been able to crack it than, than why, why Tennant didn't. Maybe, look, it may be just simply that the B, that BBC America got its act together, that they filmed um, some of uh, uh, Matt Smith's early stories in the States. I mean, The Impossible mm. Astronaut and The Day of the Moon... It is set at recognisably American, uh, you know, locations, and that is an excellent way of hooking the American viewer in because this strange, quirky TV show with this uh, really, you know, charismatic lead has come to our our country, and you, you, I suppose you feel that sense of acknowledgement that they've come to your, you know, you know they've come over overseas, your heartland. They've come yeah. to, to the heartland of America, effectively, mm. and uh, and are embracing mm. America. I mean, be, I suppose it would be the same if. The production team came out here and filmed in uh, in Melbourne or Sydney or, or Brisbane. You know there would there would be crowds following that and audience interest would spike because it would be it would receive mainstream coverage here in Australia and people would you know would would watch uh, the show to, um, to just to have that, that vicarious pleasure of seeing uh, you know well known Australian icons on a on a foreign TV show. It's like when uh, uh, Modern Family came to Sydney uh, late last year. To, to film a couple of episodes uh we, we had that same sort of mainstream coverage as well and i'm sure that the viewing numbers when those episodes uh, screened here in australia would have demonstrated that also the moffat storytelling formula has obviously made an impact in in the states they enjoy his arcs they enjoy the type of stories 
he and his riding team serve up as well, as opposed to maybe that the RTD didn't hit the mark in that way. The arc type of storytelling uh, is is basically an American creation from you know the, the 90s, and um, RTD consciously embraced that um, from the first series. You know, he, he looked back to Buffy, the Vampire Slayer, and other shows, and said, "Well, we're going to do that as well. We're going to have something here that revo- rewards the, the you know the, uh, the 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 keen viewer." But it's not going to so alienate the casual viewer that we're going to exclude them from the experience as well. And um, by tapping into a sort of a novelistic sort of storytelling uh, formula, it, 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 is more, uh, it can be a more rewarding uh, experience because uh, on the surface you can just watch the show and, and move on. But on the flip side, uh, you, can, you can see layers. You can see uh, story elements being revealed and unpeeled. And uh, it allows you a sense of, well... I'm of immersion into a story and that if it takes you on a journey and then you know you go from the first episode of the series to the last episode of the series you get that uh, you, you reach the climax and then all is revealed and you sort of all that build-up is suddenly uh, released the tension is released mm. and you um, and you've experienced a total journey a total story journey from go to woe and mm. I think that can explain some of the you know the very keen interest uh, and in some instances the ma- the mania or the rapturous uh, applause that the, the, the you know the Matt Smith era received in the states because uh, the, the American viewing audience w- was experienced with that sort of storytelling and uh, to see it on a foreign show I suppose made it even more rewarding for them the one thing it's I've noticed with the Capaldi launch is that BBC America seemed to be pushing it a lot more than maybe the BBC are BBC America doing Doctor Who the ultimate companion I think this weekend it got showed in the US either today or yesterday I think with Peter Davison hosting it they seem to be doing a lot more specials uh, leading up to the uh, launch of Capaldi next weekend where the BBC have been running just trailers really haven't they they haven't been doing anything out of the ordinary a lot of the buzz around Capaldi has been around the print media they've been doing uh, was it the Guardian did that four page spread on Capaldi and the Times as well the Sunday and, Times and the Times as well and obviously the BBC has launched trailers and things like that but really haven't done the extra effort well I suppose um, and, or am I wrong no 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 I, I would agree with you I think as we saw with um, the 50th anniversary, where it seems that the BBC effectively subcontracted out the marketing to a company called Red B. Is that right? Mm, that's right. They, I, th- I suppose the BBC, um, which is its experience is in making television or producing television, would be happy to be advised by you know professional marketeers. So I suppose the UK uh, market is... Uh, within the UK market, Doctor Who would be regarded as a mature product now. I mean, after all, it's been back for almost 10 years. So there's very little. I mean, I think the 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 audience viewing numbers that it's you know it it has is basically that's its ceiling. It, you you can't see it going uh, any higher than what it is. So you you wouldn't expect them uh, to you know push it as hard as they 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 have in the past because I suppose it's diminishing returns. In America, in a 320 million uh, you know. Population. population the upside is virtually unlimited yes you would as you said before get that big push by bbc america to have you know events uh, in new york and events at comic-con and, and and these sort of things and um you know articles in entertainment weekly which is you know the industry one of the industry bibles in terms of entertainment there's there's mm. uh, there's no basically the sky's the limit for doctor who in america i mean it can it can break out of that genre strangle uh, hold uh, that it, it sort of is in at the moment and you know maybe jump 
to to an, to another level. And clearly, BBC America sees it as a vehicle for a much more wider embrace of BBC America and and the other programs that it shows on on that channel. BBC America might be slightly worried about the Capaldi casting in terms of, well, he is slightly, obviously he's not slightly, he's older than what uh, Matt Smith was. He's, he's, he's old enough to be uh, Matt Smith's father. He is. Maybe they're pushing it a lot more from their side because Capaldi is a unknown quantity and just trying to get a bit more familiarity about him before launch date. Where in the UK, he's obviously a known commodity over there. And maybe the BBC don't think they have to push that hard. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. There was a lot of consternation at the time that Capaldi's uh, casting was announced. I mean, I, you, we've all seen the YouTube videos of you know younger <laughs> fans saying, "What? Who? He's old. He's got grey hair." Ugh. There's nothing wrong with grey hair, people. Embrace it. It's exactly. your future. Getting Capaldi out there in front of the audience and and you know demonstrating that he's you know, he's vibrant, he's with it, he's hip, you know, he's not square. And having him, you know, having General Louise Coleman beside him, um, mm. just, you know, I think would demonstrate to people watching that, you know, it, the, the show A is in, in a safe pair of hands. Uh, it's okay to like an older man because General Louise Coleman is, you know, happy and smiling and standing beside him, uh, in, to put it in crude terms. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah you, I mean, I, I suppose you know, fair enough to say that BBC America would be worried about the uh, the reception to to, to Capaldi. But mm. I mean, looking at the blizzard of interviews and you know articles, etc. Uh, etc. Et that have come out since you know uh, uh, Matt Smith left uh, about Capaldi, mm. um, I, I don't think they have too much to worry about. I think that you know he'll be embraced as much as Matt Smith was embraced, and much as David Tennant and Christopher Eccleston were embraced. All right, so Mark, just to close out the discussion, um, I think we would be uh, amiss in not talking about the way uh, the internet has impacted on the show's popularity. Uh, obviously, the internet was around when the show came back in 2005, and in actual fact, uh, one of the most canny pieces of unwitting uh, advertising was the leak of Rose onto the internet. Uh, you, you couldn't have asked for, for, for better publicity, even though the BBC would have absolutely been tearing its hair out at the thought that an unbroadcast episode of, uh, of you know, a new TV series had made it out onto the internet. And it's happened again twice. And it's happened again twice. Uh, much more mm. muted in actual fact, which is which is very interesting, I suppose. We discussed it a couple of casts ago. There's been, a, I suppose, a conscious decision by a lot of people to stay away from it. I'll wait till it comes out on television. Mm. Where Rose, you were starved of something for 16 years. And if you get a copy by hook or by crook, you're going to sit down and watch it. I know I did. Yes. And I still watched it again when it came out on television. So it doesn't really hurt... No, I mean, those people who've watched uh, the two leaked episodes no doubt will um, watch it again uh, on yeah, television right. and no doubt some of them will go to the cinema screening. So that's BBC right. wins out twice. Hmm. But, the, I mean, the rise of the internet has, has meant that I think it has made it easier for Doctor Who to become a global brand because effectively you're having a global conversation about the show. People are live-tweeting episodes. Um, you know, there are podcasts like this this one which are talking about Doctor Who. There's over 100 Doctor Who podcasts out there with, you know, mm. literally thousands of episodes uh, mm. of people of all different stripes offering all different opinions about all different things uh, regarding Doctor Who. And that's mm. a, that's a, that, that just contributes to the conversation. 
Um, mm. And and with uh, say for instance with the uh, the fiftieth anniversary uh, buzz that was developed, I mean that, that was you know save the day hashtag was one that many people latched onto and the, and, and the marketing people used to to drive uh, interest and publicity about the show. Clickbait, isn't it, really? Well, it is. Uh, look, mm. and, you know, Doctor Who is part of a, a global branding exercise for the BBC and um, it, it's driving the BBC as being a global entertainment um, business to a larger extent. I mean, we, we, we talk about shows like Top Gear, which are popular, but they appeal to a particular demographic, yes. the petrol head. Um, yeah. Whereas Doctor Who is is family entertainment right around the world, from Brazil to Seoul to Australia to Mexico to America. I mean, and, pe- yeah. we, rem- we, rem- we remember with uh, a bit of a wry smile Peter Haining's comment uh, in one of his books in the eighties that the show was watched by one hundred and ten million people. Uh, I hasten to suggest that the show is watched by many, many, many more people than that now. I think that's off the back in part of the interest that, that, that comes up through um, discussions on the internet. They've been very clever, as you said, engaging third-party companies to, uh, whether they outsource it or obviously engage those companies to help them create strategies to drive interest, whether it's by, as you said, Twitter hashtags. I mean, the Doctor Who World Tour had, it, had a hashtag which... We, uh, we crashed a few times <laughs> to try and get uh, publicity for our cast. And that's the other thing. The BBC are doing exactly the same. They're just creating interest and publicity by using whatever mediums uh, they know are going to work. And Twitter is one of them. And Facebook is also one of them as well. I think Twitter's probably a bit more uh, immediate. And that's why they're sort of being pushing it a bit more. Go to hashtag. You can go on there and check out the, uh, the stories relevant to that hashtag. I think the great strength of Doctor Who is its ability to, to, to form a community around it. And the way Twitter has facilitated that community building, I think has been one of the more exciting things about the show. Because me and you come from a, a, an era of, uh, you know, the, the late 70s and the early 80s, where the show, it wasn't, in Australia anyway, it wasn't really a mainstream success. It was a, an habitual thing that you saw on the ABC, but you never saw it break out into any great success so to see it now become really a global brand and something that you see on uh, mainstream television Capaldi being interviewed on mainstream television and radio here in Australia is a really remarkable thing and being taken seriously and not derided you know cheap sets crappy acting blah 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 it's been taken seriously by the mainstream media and it helps as you said before that helps get more viewers and it doesn't hurt that we live in a in an age of celebrity and an age mm. of mass entertainment. And if mm. you look at the the things that excite people of a of a certain age, it is that um, that that sort of blockbuster entertainment. And uh, look, you're not going to say that Doctor Who is as big as say an Avengers movie or Guardians of the Galaxy at the moment. But mm. I think the day is coming where the BBC and it, <laughs> You know, it, look, uh, this is a pure guess, but you, my guess is that behind the scenes, the BBC is running the numbers and saying to themselves, "Can this? Can we push Doctor Who into the into into movies? Can mm. we make a Doctor Who movie that has the sort of success that Marvel or Disney uh, has been having with you know its comics-based uh, uh, movies? Because the Avengers grossed a billion dollars, Iron Man grossed a billion dollars." Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, which I've mentioned a number of times tonight. Let's not forget that this is a movie based on second and third tier comic characters from Marvel that you they've sprinkled a bit of magic dust onto it and they've turned it into, a, out of nowhere, a global 
brand that has had you know a hundred million dollar gross in its first week or weekend in the states and i'm sure the bean counters and the marketeers at the bbc are looking at the way doctor who has been embraced on the internet look at how doctor who has been embraced in diverse and widespread markets and they are saying to themselves if we harness this if we nurture this we can make doctor who into something similar and i think that the way the Doctor Who has become part of the mainstream is a stepping stone onto, you know, not global dominance, but global success. Do you think a movie is inevitable then? I think the movie is inevitable. When you had the, that individual last year or the year before talking about, you know, you know, making a Doctor Who movie and Moffat came out and said, no, 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 the only people who will be making a Doctor Who movie is me and the BBC, it just makes sense. If the, I think the BBC would be derelict in its duty if it didn't go down that path. It would be a massive own goal and a massive missed opportunity if they did not embrace the opportunity that the shows um, acclaim the global interest and the global uh, uh, conversation about it that, that is currently going on. The day the Doctor was designed and made specifically to be shown on a cinema screen. Do you think that was its first uh, foray into testing the waters for that? Well, whether it wasn't or not, it was certainly embraced. I mean, in the States, for, on its very limited screens, it was number two for that week. So, oh, look, you know, you would have to think so. I mean, they took the opportunity of the 50th anniversary to go, well, you know what, let's fund uh, a, a near movie length story and see how it goes. And it was a success. None of us have heard anything definitive or anything really about a potential for a movie, but... I think that the day is coming where we're going to have a movie. Now, whether it's under Capaldi or whether it's under his successor, it only time will tell. But personally, I think a movie is, is almost inevitable. It'll be under Stephen Moffat's successor if it does happen. Do you think? I would think. But then again, the BBC, they're making television shows and they're happy to put them out on the cinema. So, And they're still making money on it. So they really don't have to go the extra mile and go into two or three years of development hell to create a separate movie. They can just basically say, okay, for every season launch, we're going to put it in a cinema and still make cash. That's true, but I mean, they could make, they could be making multiples and multiples of that. I mean, they could probably stump up 20 or 30 million to make, you know, decent Doctor Who movie, or they could go uh, find, you know, production partners mm. uh, and, 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 and truly pour in, you know, the 80 or 90 or 100 or $110 million dollars to make a, a true blockbuster. I think it's a no-brainer that they're going to go down that route and whether they do it themselves or whether they get funding from you know uh, global partners, at the end of the day, uh, it, it just makes sense to go go and do that because it's a mass, it'll be a massive return on investment and um, it'll be part, you know, you can see it as part of the BBC's positioning to see itself as one of the premier makers of mass entertainment in the world. If they do do it, they'd be very careful with it in terms of who they get into bed with from a production perspective because the, the aftermath of the television movie was that the rights for Doctor Who were locked for seven or eight years, curtailing its uh, early return to television. So I think uh, if they do decide to go down that path, it would be a watertight agreement and they would seek a production partner out on similar lines to their thinking as opposed to just getting into bed with, say, 20th Century Fox, which they might. At the end of the day, it comes down to cash, isn't it, really? And who can uh, market and distribute the film as well? Maybe they could kickstart it. Yeah, I'll give them a dollar. <laughs> I'll give him a dollar. I mean, George Lucas, if you if you look back at when he launched Star Wars in the 70s, he funded the other movies based on merchandising, didn't he? He did. I think the BBC are just not obviously taking what he's done lock, stock and barrel, but they're taking some of the innovations he did in terms of merchandising and publicity 
and taking it on board. And more power to them. I think I think Doctor Who there's a, there's a question mark about how long the show can go. Uh, mm. It lasts on British television, but I think that if it really makes a success of itself in the US, even if its its ratings fall away substantially, like twenty or thirty percent from where they currently are, I I tend to think, and I'm happy to be derided for this, but I tend to think that if it's still a success in the US and around the world, that would be enough to sustain it as a as a you know as a a product. As something that mm. would continue to be made. Now, whether the BBC would want to do that themselves, or whether the BBC would, you know, contract that out to be made by a different production house under BBC auspices, uh, that's 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 something else that could be considered. But I think at the moment it's enough of a global brand that its its future can be considered safe for at least the next two to three or five years. You would have to be the most massive of missteps for the show to fall over completely and and uh, and sort of give up. The, all the ground that it's gained um, in mm. terms of mainstream interest. If the show ever got cancelled again, it would find a new home, say, like on Netflix. Netflix or Amazon taken over the production of Ripper Street, the BBC drama that got canned? I believe it's Amazon. It'll just get taken up by those companies. Mm-hmm. I mean, essentially, retailing companies have taken over content production. It won't just die and wither on the vine like it did first time around, or second time around. We've got a bit of a backlog here, Rob, so let's read out some letters. You've got mail. Excellent, Mark. Uh, Our latest uh, letter here is from uh, JR uh, via Facebook and, of course, the Blue Box podcast. JR has uh, written in response to our 21st episode. Seems so long ago, doesn't it? Years, months and years ago. We've actually been on air for a year, Rob. Is it a year today? A year on the 13th. We completely forgot about it. Oh, well, so, you know, you at our age, anniversaries are mere, you know, uh, are sad reminiscences. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so JR writes, uh, just finished listening to the latest, at that point, podcast. Uh, had to chuckle when Sayward came up and I got a mention. In a nice bit of synchronicity, you started off by talking about the three Doctors and how its influence had passed down over the other celebratory episodes to come. Funnily enough, I just a couple of weeks ago submitted a column for the magazine on that very same subject. The other thing that came up was the subject of the case of Androzani, a story that sent Rob's wife to sleep. I had a similar reaction over here. The story was greeted with boredom and the question of why it needed to be so grim. I think the case of Androzani is perhaps the story the fans need to kind of reinforce them in that they're watching something that is seen as a kid's show. It's about as grown up as Doctor Who gets on the face of it, and that's what they love it for. But actually, it isn't really that grown up. It just looks it. Like an episode of Blake 7, it has guest characters running around with guns while at once behaving really seriously towards one another. And I prefer my Doctor Who when it's more honest and more fun. The Case of Androzani is a brilliantly written and beautifully directed, in air quotes, Eric Sayward story, but it's still an Eric Sayward story by nature, and I'll never really love it, nor even rate it particularly highly because of that. I don't think its fans like it as a good example of Doctor Who, like Inferno and much of Season 7, which still manages to retain its sense of mischief by and large. I think it's what people sometimes wish a grown-up version of Doctor Who ought to be. And this is why their grown-up selves love it so much. 
and probably while growing up, loved it because it made them feel more grown up. JR closes out by saying, Aliens of London is just as well written, directed and performed, but it never forgets that it's not our friends in the north or edge of darkness, and I will always prefer it because of that. And that's from JR. Uh, any thoughts on JR's uh, comments there, Mark? I, I can understand what JR's saying about Caves of Androsani. JR is not one of uh, Eric Sayward's biggest fans, is he? No. So maybe his perception is slightly skewed because of that. I wonder if JR's opinion of Caves of Androsani is, is coloured by Sayward in the following season attempting to replicate the success of Caves of Androsani and picking the not wrong... Not really el- succeeding. Well, he's picking the wrong elements. Yeah, he is. I mean, look, there is it is violent and there is, you know, guns and, and all that sort of thing. But I think that what Sayward failed to do was pick up on what Holmes did, which was, you know, craft a simple but very effective story with characters who were characters and not merely just cardboard cutouts filling up space and, you know, contributing to the plot. So, I mean, look, I I stand by my view that The Case of Androzani is my best story for the 80s and is probably in my top three or four, uh, and I'll fight anyone over that. (laughs) But, um, look, look, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion, of course, and, you know, JR makes some really telling points there about, you know, maybe some fans do latch on to Case of Androzani to validate their sense that the show is an adult show and is more legitimised because of that. I simply like Case of Androzani because it's an excellent story, not simply because of any sort of particular elements in it. I think it's a really excellent story, excellently written, excellently played, excellently directed. Mm. Uh, and I think it stands... It, it, it is atypical of the Davison era. There's no doubting, doubting that. But you, you can't fault it simply because... Um, it, it, it's it's different to the to, to the rest of uh, that, that particular era, or even the or of the eighties itself. Case of Androzani sticks out in a sea of mediocrity in terms of direction for Davison era. When Eric Sayward got that script, he didn't have to do hardly any work on it, did he? No, other than the last scene, which is Sayward, it's mm. all Robert Holmes, effectively, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But I, personally, I would rather watch Case of Androzani any day over. Aliens of London. But, however, Edge of Darkness, I'll, I'll agree with him on that. I think that, that's brilliant. Oh, br- absolutely brilliant, Edge of Darkness. Yeah. I watched it for yeah. the first time a few years ago, and I was I was stunned. I was really stunned. It's it's, it's It was like... It's a bit like True Detective for me uh, from when I was watching that earlier in the year. I, I could not mm. stop watching it. I just felt compelled to mm. keep on watching it. It's just... Yeah, for those of you who haven't watched True Detective, get out there and, and, and do so. It's, uh, it's brilliant television. Mm. And watch Edge of Darkness, the television version... Not the film. Not the Mel Gibson version. We've actually had a comment posted on our underutilised blog, Rob, by somebody called Squibby, who again uh, mentions about our 21st episode, says, Another excellent episode, although I do have to wonder, if you can't accept John Hurtstock, then Brandon Mobius can't possibly be canon. Obviously referencing the many past incarnations of, which I assumed was Morbius, not the Doctor. I think you have to accept the, the faces there as being Morbius, otherwise the accepted canon of the TV series makes absolutely no sense. I've been watching with a slight bit of perverse glee, Stephen Moffat trying to explain away the whole John Hurt <laughs> incarnation to a couple of magazines and panels over the last couple of weeks. I've been, quite enjoyed him watching him squirm, trying to A, justify it and B, try to explain it. He's on a hiding well. to nothing because he, yeah. it's he don't do it. Just don't explain yeah. it. If if the question comes up, just say pass. Go yeah, just exactly. say go watch the episode and make your own mind up. It's no, well, it's not sad, but it's it was difficult for them when Eccleston 
refused to come on board because then they had to make a you know had to madly scramble around for an alternative Mm. and i the alternative that they went with um for all the entertaining uh aspect of john hurt's performance i think the alternative they went with was a mistake i suppose you shouldn't sacrifice your story for questions of you know canonicity of course but you could have equally have gotten as fine a performance out of same again making mm. him the war doctor mm. as you did with hurt and not needlessly add confusion to the mix and then have to follow up in uh with um, <laughs> with uh with time of the doctor by mm. baldly stating that you know the tenant doctor um you know regenerated twice which <laughs> that's pants is the is the most you know, wretched sort of thinking that, you know, blights the show. It just, it does nothing. It doesn't add to the enjoyment of the viewing experience. It just, it's just an absolute head scratcher. So, I mean, and suddenly the War Doctor is what? The Ninth Doctor? And and Eccleston is the yes. Tenth Doctor and Tennant is the Eleventh yes. and Twelfth and, 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 and uh, Smith is the Thirteenth? I mean, that's the intent, isn't it? Oh, you've confused me already. It's bullshit. <laughs> it's utter, utter bullshit. Anyway, it's happened. Let's move on. We also received a tweet. I think it's Doc Hume. Hello there. He tweeted saying he's liking our new fandom archive segment. And he said a picture of his proof that the Afro tapes always existed. And he included a picture of Gebek from Monster of Peladon who had an amazing Afro. Yeah, we enjoyed doing the drag from the archives section. I've actually spent yesterday going through more of my old DWBs pulling out some more gold. And I was feverishly sending them over to Rob for his uh, comments. So... Next podcast, we'll definitely do some more of that because we enjoyed it. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. There was uh, some absolute gold from some uh, now luminaries of uh, yeah. of Doctor Who fandom. See, your past always comes and bites you on the bum. Now, before we uh, leave uh, for mm-hmm. this episode, um, this episode, God willing, should be released in the on the eve of the uh, screening of Deep Breath. Uh, Mark, uh, what are our thoughts uh, of the end upcoming uh, series eight? I see this as a new beginning, a dawn of a new era, Rob. I'm hoping it will actually re-engage me to the series. I've been a bit, how can I say, a little bit off towards it at the moment, and I don't know whether it's because I'm still suffering from 50th anniversary burnout, I'm not too sure. So I just want to re-engage with it again. That's why I'm going to go to the cinema and watch Capaldi on the big screen and, and try and get some enthusiasm around it for myself. And I want to, every week, actually say, you know, I'm looking forward to Doctor Who tonight. As opposed to being, well, oh, Doctor Who's on tonight. A bit yeah. more enthusiasm about it. Yeah, like I understand where you're yeah. coming from. I mean, doing a, a podcast like this, you don't want to come across as being a grump about the new series and just all praise no. about the the classic series. You, you want to enjoy. You want to. You want to find the enjoyment in it. And I, I suppose it's hard. It, it's hard sometimes when it's just. It doesn't seem like it's for you. But there's a new era. While there's life, there's hope. Yeah. Tears, uh, Mark. Tears. No, more tumultuous buffeting. I think. <laughs> But uh, yeah, look, bring on Capaldi. I'm sure he'll be marvellous. And I hope Jenna gets some good material to work with. And I hope they give us some a good range of stories that, um, that can showcase what he can do. Mm. What about you? I am hoping that the direction that they have indicated that they're going with, with a, you know, a darker doctor, someone who clearly isn't uh, uh, of the, struck from the same mould as Tennant or Smith, 
is indicative of a change in the direction of the stories themselves. I, my, I'm not disillusioned with the new series. I am heartily sick of the sort of stories that they're doing, the, the, the way the stories are, are constructed and, and, and depicted. Uh, I'm hoping that with a, a slightly darker Doctor, perhaps, there's a change in the, the type of stories that we get. And I'm not asking for a radical change, but I'm asking for a bit more depth, less glibness, perhaps even more just straight up, you know, storytelling. So mm. if if the production team doesn't grasp the opportunity of the new lead actor in Capaldi and serves up the same fare that they did during say season six or season seven, I look. I don't know. I think I'll be I'll be really disappointed. I'll uh, it 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 would be a real shame to throw away this opportunity to you know swap out the lead actor but tell exactly the same sort of stories in exactly the same style and if they don't embrace the opportunity for change i'll regard it as a missed opportunity and i you know capaldi is clearly enthusiastic for the role he's clearly his own man he is bringing a new energy a different energy to it and Mm. if they don't embrace that it'll be to their discredit uh, and so I, I, you know, I hope for all their sakes that the, it, it all comes off and they, they, they bring something new and vibrant to the show because I think it was a little bit tired in that last season. It's a uh, bit of a downer, isn't it? Sorry. Good luck to everyone who's, who's going to the cinema uh, and, and watching it there and, uh, and, and hope everyone uh, enjoys the new, new, uh, the new series yeah. because um, the hopes and dreams of many, many millions of people, as we've discussed, uh, ride on this you know, strange, quirky, uh, entertaining show. That's right. And if you like it, contact us and let us know. And tell us why you liked it. Absolutely. And in fact, we just had confirmation that we've got a prize copy of Deep Breath to give away. Is that a Blu-ray DVD? Blu-ray? Blu-ray? It is a Blu-ray DVD. So I will give out the competition details next podcast. Now, before Mm. we go, we we have to give a plug to Rob Lloyd. Plug, plug. Uh, plug uh, for, for Rob. Uh, as, as we said before, Rob came on to our previous episode. It broke all our downloading records. So once again, thank you to Rob and thank you to all our listeners and to our new listeners, in, in fact, who hopefully they've stuck around for, for the next episode. Uh, as we said, or as Rob discussed at that time, um, he's taking his show, Who Me, uh, to the Chicago Fringe Festival. Uh, so Rob will be appearing uh, there on Thursday the 28th of August, Saturday the 30th of August, and Sunday the 30th of August. Full details are on his website. Uh, it's www.robloyd.com.au. Uh, so check out his uh, website for the dates and how to book. And uh, we wish uh, Rob all the best uh, with his show in uh, you know the United States of America. So thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. And we look forward to International Compaldi Day on the 23rd. Yeah, is it 23rd or 24th? Uh, well, 24th here... 23rd in the United Kingdom. So, to close off this episode, I am now really eager and optimistic about the new Capaldi era. Yeah, you're right, Mark. Uh, Look, we can only look forward to the new uh, series opener, uh, and I hope uh, it's as enjoyable as the uh, sense of anticipation uh, indicates. So, until next time, catch you later. Bye. You've been listening to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the Doctor Who podcast hosted by Rob and Mark. You can contact us on our Twitter account at 42 to Doomsday. You can email us at our Gmail account, 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. Facebook us at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. Until we meet again, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you soon.
Just like the first terrifying <laughs> symptoms of syphilis, the world tour has come and gone. <laughs> uh, why not? <laughs> That'll be the Easter egg at the end. <laughs>